Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And this is Come Follow Me Insights from Book of Mormon Central. Today will be Alma 39 through 42. Look at the contrast of where we've been. We had chapters 36 and 37 were given to Helaman, who was the son of Alma, who's going to be the next prophet in charge of the records and in charge of teaching and leading the people as a high priest. And then you had chapter 38 given to Shiblon, this son who maybe he's a little overzealous, he's excited, and he's told by his father, use boldness, but not overbearance, and bridle all your passions, all of that stuff. And then you got 39 through 42 for this third son, Corianton. Notice four chapters, one chapter, two chapters. Uh, it's almost as if Alma is spending more time, double the time, compared to with Helaman, with his son Corianton, who is struggling. Now, what makes Corianton's struggles here more significant is the fact that he's serving a mission with his dad, his brother, Amulek, Zeezrom, others, and Alma here tells him in verse 2 that he went on in unto much boasting in his strength and his wisdom, and then he forsook the ministry in verse 3 and went over into the land of Siren among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot, Isabel. So I just want to share a possible insight about this that may be tied into the story of Isabel with whom he should not have been having any interactions at all. So back in 39, Alma has said, this is verse 3 of Alma 39, and this is not all, my son. Thou didst go do that which was grievous unto me, for thou didst forsake the ministry and did go over into the land of uh, Siron among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. Yea, she did steal away the hearts of many, but this was no excuse for thee, my son, thou shouldest have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. So, what I'm going to share here is probably a bit of a speculation. It's something I wonder about, but I think it's interesting that we have this name here, and I think there's a connection to Corianton's misunderstanding around the principle of resurrection and the power of God, or the power of Jehovah. So the name Isabel, beautiful name. In Hebrew, it may come from two words, the word Baal, which in Hebrew can mean the um, the ancient Canaanite false god of Baal. In some instances, it actually means Lord 
or even husband. But in this instance, it actually might refer to this false god, Baal. And Isha, or Isa, means woman or wife. And the full reading would be Isha Baal, and as it gets shortened, it becomes Isabel. So the word Isabel may then mean wife of Baal. Okay? And if that is true, if that's what the name means, um, in the ancient world, in the ancient Israelite times, the Israelites sometimes found themselves led away by Baal. You might remember Elijah spending a lot of time preaching to the people, and he was contending with them or contesting with the priests of Baal who were teaching people to follow after this false Canaanite or Phoenician god. And let me share a little further. There seems to be some indication that for the ancient Canaanites, Baal was the god of restoration and resurrection. Back in the Middle East, there were kind of two major seasons. The rainy season that brought fertility to the world and life abounded, and the dry season where everything was dead. And in that cycle, right, you have rain and dry. During the dry season, the ancient Canaanites believed the Baal had died and that they had to engage in these rituals to bring him back, to bring fertility to the world. And by doing these actions, it would bring resurrection and restoration because that's what he would bring. And there was these cycles that go along. And what's interesting is what Alma says is like, Corianton, because of your actions, people wouldn't believe my message. Now, definitely, if you are not keeping the commandments, people are going to have a hard time trusting the truth of your message. But... What if a missionary abandons the religion that he's teaching, right, the truth, and actually engages in false religion, publicly engaging in the false rituals of a false religion? That would make it really hard for anyone to say, well, obviously, <laughs> to, to believe his message of truth. And so I wonder if in the message that Alma is sharing that Corianton has got himself confused and been led away by false religion and false damaging uh, practices. Alma, as a good and tender father, has taken the time to correct his son. And in some ways, that's a symbol of God the Father and all of us. Who among us hasn't in some ways made a mistake? Maybe not quite like what Corianton has done, but all of us have fallen. All of us have, from time to time, time abandoned what we knew to be true, maybe even just for a few moments. That is what it means to have a fallen nature. But like Alma the Younger, the tender father, we have God the Father who is willing to teach us again and remind us and plead with us and encourage us and put out his outstretched arms to say, the arms of mercy are here to envelop you in the love of God once again. And no matter what we've done, we can repent and return to God. And that's one of the beautiful messages repeated throughout the Book of Mormon and is a center point of what's going on in these chapters of Alma 39 to 42. 
but we can have hope. Now, what makes this so difficult is the fact that Alma is his father, Alma is Corianton's priesthood leader, his, his mission president, and he's also the prophet over all the church, and here's his own son who's going and having these struggles. He's, he's going to give Corianton a whole series of teachings later on, but first, notice a pattern here. Notice that in chapter 39, you're going to get verse 1 through 2. He's, he's going to set up this idea of how Corianton could have prevented the sin. So he's giving him what could have been his preventative measures, which, by the way, are to point him forward into the future temptations that he'll face, Follow these so you don't get into the temptations. Then you'll notice verse 5 through 8, he's focusing Corianton on the serious nature of the sins that he's committed. Then verse 9 through 14, he's going to give him verbs and steps and helps for how to repent how to make this right, how to turn back towards the right, and then verse 15 through 19, he's going to be focusing Corianton on the solution to the problem, because you can't repent, you can't do any, you can't take any steps forward on your own, so he's going to be pointing him to Christ. You've got these problems, serious sins, issues, Corianton, well, Jesus Christ is always going to be that solution. In fact, on a side note here, my friend and colleague at BYU, Eric Huntsman, he, with his students, when they take a test, he tells them, look, if you don't know the answer to the test, just write down Jesus, because Jesus is always the answer and he'll give them half credit if they'll just put Jesus for the answer. Uh, kind of funny, but it's very true. Jesus is always the answer. We're going nowhere that matters in our repentance process or in our life without him and without his help. Now, notice that he had to help his son see the need to repent before he could talk about the solution. Hence, you'll notice an interesting pattern here. You didn't have to do this, Corianton, what you did was very serious. He had to remind him of that serious nature. Can you imagine what general conference would be like if the apostles and prophets and leaders of our church got up and the entire time they're just talking about the seriousness of sin versus what would it be if the pendulum swing is on the other side? What if they spent 100% of their time talking about the solution and just about Christ and never talking about – it really doesn't matter what you do, it's not that serious. So you can see the struggle trying to keep the, the balance between the serious nature of sin and the hope that we have in Christ and our ability to, to repent and be forgiven. So here's this father, Alma, the younger, who by the way knows some things about committing serious sins, and 
now he has his son in some very difficult settings and situations, and he's working with him to bring him back to the covenant path. Notice one of the, uh, the issues that he mentions here in the middle of the repentance is, this, is a repeat of the serious nature. Look at verse 11. Suffer not yourself to be led away by any vain or foolish thing. Suffer not the devil to lead away your heart again after those wicked harlots. Behold, O my son, how great iniquity you brought upon the Zoramites, for when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. Brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, people are going to judge the church of Jesus Christ by the behavior of its members. That may be that, that may be a misplaced judgment, but it is the way the world often ends up making their, their decisions on, on – and, and their judgments on the church is by its members. Now, let me give you a little scenario to put this into context. Would it be appropriate for us to go into a second-grade uh, classroom with a whole bunch of students working on math problems? And would it be appropriate for us to walk up and down those aisles and look at all of those math worksheets and see all the mistakes those students are making and walk out of that classroom and, and come together and say, you know what? Math is bad. Math is broken. Math doesn't work. Did you see what we saw in there? That would be a really silly conclusion to draw. Now, now, some of you may agree that math is broken or that math is bad because maybe you've struggled with, with those worksheets like, like the second graders back when you were in that uh, age category, but here's the point. Math is not broken. Math is not bad because students struggle to perfectly apply the mathematical principles they've been taught. The thing that's broken is the application of correct principles, not the principles. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, are not broken because members have a hard time applying principles that they learn from the gospel or in church at times, faced with certain temptations. The struggle isn't with the, the organization or the, the, the teachings, it's with us. So here's the problem. If people are, are judging the church by its members' inability to apply principles that they've learned, then it's all the more reason for us to, to work on learning those principles, implementing those principles, and teaching those principles to others, not in a sense of, look at me, I'm perfect at living them, but saying, I'm struggling with some, some of these gospel principles, but the gospel principles are pure. Here's Corianton, who was clearly struggling, and his, his father was saying, look, people aren't even believing my words because of your conduct. Uh, we could do a better job collectively of helping people understand the difference between our lack of application and the powerful 
God-given principles or standards, uh, just like a mathematical formula for us to follow, uh, that those are pure and those are good, and we're going to see that come up in the rest of the story. Now, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland many years ago at BYU gave a speech where he talked about the fact that sometimes when somebody's struggling, we can do things that make their struggle even worse. Listen to this. This is from his BYU devotional in 1984 called A Robe, a Ring, and a Fatted Calf. Quote, when a battered, weary swimmer tries valiantly to get back to shore after having fought strong winds and rough waves, which he should have never challenged in the first place. Those of us who might have had better judgment or perhaps just better luck ought not to row out to his side, beat him with our oars, and shove his head back under water. That's not what boats were made for, but some of us do that to each other. The principle here is Corianton got in over his head. He's drowning out there. He's struggling. And I love the fact that his father, that also doubles in this instance as, as his priesthood leader, symbolically gets into a rowboat, rows out to this struggling boy, and says, son, get in the boat. Let me help you understand some things about life about struggles and sin and repentance and Christ. So now you're going to notice that after one chapter of kind of setting the stage, he's now going to spend three chapters teaching doctrine, clarifying misunderstandings, and helping this son who is struggling way more than his two brothers, consequently he's going to get way more time from his father. That's a beautiful beautiful principle for us to consider that uh, perhaps the people, the, uh, the parts of your family or the parts of your congregation that need the most time are the parts that are the most broken, the parts that are the most hurting and, and need the most care and attention. So we begin this next part in chapter 40. Notice there's a pattern. In chapter 40, verse 1, chapter 41, verse 1, and chapter 42, verse 1. There's a repeat. The concept that gets repeated is he refers to him as my son and I perceive. That, that appears in all three of these, these verse 1 um, of these three chapters. My son. I perceive. You'll notice his son struggling, how that must have, have been a bit of a soothing, healing salve to the soul of his son to hear his dad three times refer to him, my son, my son, my son, and I perceive, I perceive, I perceive. His dad's not preaching at him. His dad is perceiving what his struggles, what his questions and concerns are, and he's addressing those. It's a pretty good formula, pretty good uh, pattern for us to follow in our teaching and in our parenting. So, 
notice how this uh, how this begins in chapter 40. What is the first thing that he perceives? Verse 1, I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Corianton isn't the first one to, to be concerned about and to worry about the resurrection of the dead. And I'd like to tell a personal story about the power of resurrection. This comes from my wife, Lisa. So when Lisa was about 20 uh, in college, she noticed she was starting to lose her hearing, and she ended up getting hearing aids, a bit like those of us, like me, if I wasn't wearing contacts, I would have pretty thick glasses. Um, I'm, I'm pretty blind without my contacts. And over the years, uh, Lisa's hearing has gotten worse and worse, and so she just got better and better hearing aids. Well, unfortunately, a couple years ago, she woke up one morning and all the hearing was gone in her left ear, all, all of it. And despite lots of interventions, prayer and fasting, nothing brought it back. And it was extremely distressing to think, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with only one ear, which itself has low hearing, which is helped a bit by hearing aids. So she concluded to get a pretty invasive surgery called a cochlear implant. It's basically they cut into your skull and insert a little computer and connect it to your ear so you can, can actually gain some hearing back. The cochlear implant, it's a bit of a uh, difficult surgery, it's painful, there's kind of a long recovery time, and then it can take many, many months of rehabilitation to actually make use of that little computer that's now been put into your head. And for my wife, she was one of the rare individuals where the sound did not sound normal. All the voices sounded like cyborgs or Darth Vader, so she couldn't, out of one ear, tell the difference between my voice or our kids' voices, and that was distressing to her because she thought, I really hope I don't lose the natural hearing, though compromised, in my right ear. Well, unfortunately, um, that did happen. My wife and I take travel groups to different places around the world, the Holy Land. We, we were taking a tour group to India. The day we were leaving, she woke up and all the hearing was gone out of her right ear. Well, we thought maybe it's just water in your ear from, I don't know, a shower or something. We flew all the way to India with all these people, got to New Delhi, it wasn't better, and while we're trying to manage all these people in the airport and get them uh, launched on this trip we were leading, I was also trying to frantically on Google find somebody in New Delhi who could, could help. Um, we found this man who stayed late at his office till midnight, uh, an audiologist. He spent time with us and concluded what we had feared, she'd lost all of her hearing, and at that point, we really didn't have very good options. We decided to send my wife home and I continued the trip with these 60 people all on my own. And my wife did aggressive treatments and was able to bring back um, some of the hearing in her right ear. Well, a few months later, my wife actually, um, dealing with another health issue, trying to fix bunions on her feet where the toes kind of curve in on themselves and make it difficult to walk and pain, uh, make it painful. She got a bunion, uh, her, her foot operated on and in the follow-up a few weeks later, the day we went in for the follow-up, two bad medical things happened. First, all of her hearing went out again on her right ear, completely gone. And we discovered that the foot that had been operated on wasn't healing properly. That resulted in ultimately, I lose track now, seven or eight additional foot surgeries last year. She basically was in bed for four or five months, couldn't drive a car, and at the same time, she couldn't do any treatments on her ear because of the situation with her foot. And it was just this real loss for her that ultimately for her to realize, 
I've lost all my hearing totally and completely in both ears. And uh, we found ourselves in this moment of like facing the reality of life that our bodies fall apart. So we had actually planned another trip to lead a tour group through China of about 160 people. She didn't get to go because of her foot issue and the hearing problems. So I did it on my own, and it's interesting, while I was away, she called upon our brother-in-law who lives nearby to give her a blessing of comfort and healing. And in that powerful experience where she felt the Spirit, and after my brother-in-law left, she spent some time with God, in some ways almost like Hannah at the temple, pleading with God, talking to Him. And my wife shared that in that powerful moment of aloneness, or more specifically of quiet, Alone with God, she felt the reassuring power of the Spirit confirming to her that resurrection is real. She had wondered about that for a long time, hoped, but wondered, like, is it real? What's the assurance? I believe it. I know it's in scriptures, but what is the assurance? And the Spirit came to her fully and powerfully and confirmed to her that in a future day, her body will return to full restoration and full perfection through the power of Jesus Christ. And I remember getting the note from her in email about this beautiful experience, and I asked her if it would be okay with me for me to share this with you today, to reassure all of us that in a future day, just as Alma taught, and just as my wife has learned through the Spirit, we will all be restored and resurrected because of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Thank you, Taylor, for that uh, personal story of your wife. That's extremely relevant and timely. You'll notice, you'll notice here that there are lots and lots and lots of questions that we have about resurrection. Chapter 40 is filled with uncertainty regarding certain aspects of the resurrection. And Alma tells his son Corianton over and over, watch for it in chapter 40, things where he'll say, I, I don't know, I give it as my opinion, I'm, it, this hasn't been revealed yet. There are lots of questions in Alma's mind, and some of those have been resolved through, through Joseph Smith and Restoration Scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants. But you'll notice what Alma does. He shows a pattern. When you have questions about things, you go back to what you absolutely know. And he's doing this over and over again with regards to uh, his questions, his concerns about the resurrection. So go over to verse 10. And when the time cometh when all shall rise, then shall they know that God knoweth all the times which are appointed unto man. It's like, even though we don't know all these things, God knows. Look at verse 11, now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, that's 100%, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. This raises a whole bunch of questions for us. All men and women, as soon as they're dead, are taken home to that God who gave them life. Notice the word state, starting in verse 11. 
you could just in your scriptures mark every time you see the word state or, or at least notice the word state and what it implies. It comes up three times in verse 12. You're going to see it multiple times in verse 14 and 15, and he's describing these states of being that people enter into. In verse 12, he he refers to spirit paradise, a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace. In other words, tests, mortal struggles, they're not intended to last forever. They're a temporal thing that's going to pass, and then we enter into a different state, a state of rest. But notice he then describes those who have chosen evil. Look at verse 14. Now this is the state of the souls of the wicked, yea, in darkness, in a state of awful, fearful, looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. Thus they remain in this state, as well as the righteous in paradise, until the time of their resurrection. So he's talking about this period from when you die until the time that you're resurrected, what's happening? And he's describing these various states of being that people are going to find themselves in. When I was younger, uh, I got in an argument with my sister, and she started running towards the house. I picked up a rock and threw it at her, and I missed her, but I didn't miss the window, a very large, beautiful window in our home, and put a, a big hole in that window. Mom and Dad weren't home at the time. Well, guess where I went? I went to my room. I crawled under my bed and I stayed there until I heard the car come home and the, the uh, garage door go up and I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> in a little child's perspective, Alma's teaching the same principle in a really big way. Gratefully, my parents didn't uh, disown me and banish me forever in that context and there is great hope, great redemption for repairing broken windows and shattered lives as well at a much bigger, bigger level. So as you're reading through 40, just pay attention to what he doesn't know and where he says, I give it as my opinion, contrasted with what he does know and what he's absolutely certain of that we're all going to get this opportunity to be brought into the presence of God and to, to find redemption and to be restored through a glorious resurrection. Now, chapter 41, he's, he's finished his dis discussion of resurrection. Now he refers to the law of the harvest is what we would call it today. It's the plan of restoration. Notice what he perceives in 41 verse 1, I perceive that thy mind has been worried concerning this thing. Verse 2, I say unto thee, my son, that the plan of restoration is requisite with the justice of God. Now, he's going to describe some things going on in uh, in a kind of an analogy that I would use here to make more sense of this would be a simple garden. You can't go and plant tomato seeds in the spring and expect to pick corn from those plants in the fall. 
you can't plant weeds and expect to pick vegetables in the fall. The law of the harvest is you reap what you sow. Whatever you put into the ground, you're going to get back someday. And so chapter 41 is filled with this concept of restoration, bringing things back. Look at verse 7. These are they that are redeemed of the Lord, yea, these are they that are taken out, that are delivered from that endless night of darkness, and thus they stand or fall, for behold, they are their own judges, whether to do good or to do evil. Brothers and sisters, the garden plot is a symbol for mortality, and I have at my disposal all kinds of seeds that I can put into my life into my life's plot. I don't have – nobody's forcing me to plant certain kinds of fruits and vegetables or grains. I can, I can throw out weeds or I can ignore it and let the weeds grow spontaneously. I am my own judge. I get to judge. I get to decide. Isn't that interesting that God says they are their own judges through Alma here? because the reality is, is there will be a day when we will no longer get to be our own judge, when Christ will now judge us according to our deeds. And on that day, it's not the day to be planting. That's the day where we reap what we've sown through life. And he's trying to help his son, Alma's trying to help Corianton here, understand that Verse 8, now the decrees of God are unalterable, therefore the way is prepared that whosoever will may walk therein and be saved. You get to choose, Corianton. I'm not forcing you to be good. I'm not forcing you to come back to the, to the covenant path and to move forward. I'm helping you understand that you can keep planting those seeds of being boastful and prideful and going after the harlot Isabel, but that doesn't produce good fruit. Look at verse 10. Do not suppose, because it has been spoken concerning restoration, that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. One of the most quoted verses of the entire Book of Mormon, coming from a guy, Alma, who knew an awful lot about wickedness in his earlier years. And he's saying to his son Corianton, oh, don't think that, that these thrills of the, the carnal, sensual, devilish, fallen nature that we've inherited, don't think that if you feed those or plant those kinds of seeds that that's going to lead to happiness because it doesn't. It leads to ruin. It leads to sorrow and misery and despair and to a state not of peace, not of happiness or paradise. And so he's describing the fact that uh, verse 11, now my son, all men that are in a state of nature, or I would say in a carnal state, or in the gall of bitterness, or in the bonds of iniquity, they are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. So you get these two competing elements, the natural man and the natural woman, 
and the nature of God. We have the spirit children of God aspect in our makeup that is uh, it's trying to be good, but sometimes that, that natural side can overpower and hence the need for us to get back onto the covenant path. And notice, look at verse 14, therefore, my sons, see that ye are merciful unto your brethren, deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. And if you do all these things, then shall you receive your reward. Ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. Ye shall have justice restored unto you again. Ye shall have righteous judgment restored unto you again. And ye shall have good rewarded unto you again. You judge righteously, you, you extend mercy, and all of the, those are seeds that you're putting in the ground. They will bear fruit eternally for you one day. And now he gets to chapter 42 where he, he describes some pretty profound and deep doctrines regarding the plan of redemption. And you'll notice how often he uses these ideas of plan, plan of salvation, and plan of redemption, plan of redemption, plan of happiness back in verse 8, verse 15, plan of mercy, and plan of mercy is repeated, uh, plan of happiness. Just look for plan, and it even ends in verse 31, very, very end, that the great plan of mercy may have claim upon them. This is the plan of salvation, plan of happiness, plan of redemption, plan of mercy chapter that, that mentions that more than any other in all of Scripture is chapter 42. And to sum it up, it could be uh, the simplest way to describe this is this contrast between God's mercy and God's justice, okay? Now, notice the, the perception in chapter 42, verse 1. And now, my son, I perceive there is somewhat more which doth worry your mind which you cannot understand, which is concerning the justice of God in the punishment of the sinner. For you do try to suppose that it is injustice that the sinner should be consigned to a state of misery. Why would that be? Why would Corianton be struggling with this? Is it perhaps because they've spent some time among the Zoramites who are teaching Nehor's doctrine, which says, it doesn't matter what you do. God loves you, and God's going to save everyone. God's not going to punish anyone. Everyone's going to be saved in the end. That's Nehor's doctrine, and the Zoramites in Antionum are living that doctrine. They're preaching that doctrine. So now, here's this young son who has been enticed by that doctrine, and he's a little concerned, thinking, well, is it just, is it fair, is it right for God to punish a sinner? When in reality, Alma's saying it's much more complex than, than what Nehor would have had you believe, because it's a state of being, it's this law of, of the harvest, the law of restoring things that you've put into life. So notice verse 2, behold my son, I will explain this thing unto thee, for behold, after the Lord God sent our first parents forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence they were taken, yea, he drew out the man, and he placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the tree of life. There were two trees in Eden 
among all the other trees, two that had major consequences, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. These two trees happen to be portals or entry points. This one was the entry point into mortal life. This one was the entry point into eternal life, the tree of life, springing up unto life everlasting. You'll notice as soon as they partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they've now entered this, this mortal state of their being. God placed an angel, a cherub, or cherubim, plural, and a flaming sword to guard the way of the tree of life. It wasn't time for them to enter into eternal life yet. They had to enter this probationary state. Look at verse 4. Thus we see that there was a time granted unto man to repent, yea, a probationary time, a time to repent and serve God. This space between birth, where we're, we're brought into mortality, and death, where the day will come when we get to partake of the fruit of the tree of life, entering into eternal life, hopefully, or at least resurrection for all mankind, uh, is not right after you enter into mortality. There needs to be this space, this probationary test, uh, which flies in the face of Nehor's doctrine that Corianton has maybe started to believe from these Ormites. Look at verse 5, for behold, if Adam had put forth his hand immediately and partaken of the tree of life, he would have lived forever according to the word of God, having no space for repentance, yea, and also the word of God would have been void, and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. So they become fallen. It's appointed for man to die in that next verse, and then look at verse 7. Now we see by this that our first parents were cut off both temporally and spiritually from the presence of the Lord, and thus we see that they become subjects to follow after their own will. Verse 10, therefore as they had become carnal, sensual, and devilish by nature, this probationary state became a state for them to prepare. It became a preparatory state. Now we get the plan of salvation, and we get this probationary period of life called mortality where we get to move forward in these, in these great tests. Notice that uh, the whole point here is he's setting up again this juxtapos juxtaposition between mercy and justice of God. So here you have the, the best analogy I know for chapter 42 was given by Elder Boyd K. Packer clear back in April of 1977 when he set up this idea that you have a creditor who loans money to a debtor and a, a, the terms of that loan repayment are established, but it turns out that the debtor defaults on the loan and can't pay. Justice must be served. Justice can't be robbed or God would cease to be God. Alma helps his young son Corianton understand that, that it's not, it's not that you can say, well, because God loves all of his children, therefore his law 
becomes null and void, and he can just turn a blind eye to it and say, I know you broke it, I know you planted all these seeds in your life that are weeds, but I'm just going to overcome all of that regardless of what you desired, and I'm just going to save everybody. That's Nehor's doctrine, taught to him by the devil, inspired by the devil. God's doctrine is, I love you, so I'm going to give you laws to help you learn how to live your life in a way that will put you in a state of peace, of rest, a state of paradise, eternal life, so that you can become more like me, because wickedness never was happiness. So God's love is best demonstrated by looking at the laws that he gives us, and especially the best demonstration of God's love is by giving us his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is given so that justice can still be served. Here's me, here's you. We owe a debt to justice that we've defaulted on the loan. We're, we shouldn't look at this and go, wow, I'm glad I'm not Corianton. The reality is, is symbolically, this is our story. This is all of us. We've all defaulted on that loan. So what happens? We get a mediator who comes in to stand betwixt you and justice that inserts himself right there to say, the price has to be paid. Justice must be served. So Jesus, as our mediator, steps in. Justice can still be served. It can still be paid. So he pays the loan that we can't afford, and then he turns to us and now he can extend mercy. So this is the plan of redemption. This is the plan of happiness. This is the plan of salvation in, in all of its realms, is rooted in its central feature, its central character, which is Jesus Christ. It's only through him that justice can fully be served, and mercy can fully be extended. And uh, President Boyd K. Packer's talk in April 1977 that I mentioned describes that so beautifully that Jesus now turns to us and says, look, I paid a price that you couldn't pay. Will you just have faith in me? Will you repent, which means to turn to and to change your course if we use the Hebrew version of repentance? That's what a loving, kind, gentle father is doing here. Brothers and sisters, we've spent all this time covering Alma 39 through 42, talking about Alma referring to his son Corianton, and that's wonderful and it's valid, and you can study it in the historical context for years and years and years and still keep finding truths. But for me, the reality of this chapter is I'm seeing a mirror. I'm seeing a reflection of my own story with a loving Father in heaven who's saying to me, Tyler, you've struggled. Let me teach you about the seriousness of those sins. Let me teach you about the ways you might have been able to prevent those, and let me teach you about how to turn to me, how to change how to start planting better seeds. 
how to rely on Christ. This whole section is a, a symbolic way for me to insert myself into this very real scenario and say, you don't have to have gone after a harlot named Isabel in the land of Siren to desperately need the redemptive power and mercy and merits and grace of the Redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to finish, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf many years ago gave an incredible talk where he described some of the struggles that we sometimes face in life, and here's what he says. When we feel hurt, angry, or envious, it is quite easy to judge people. This topic could actually be taught in a two-word sermon when it comes to hating, gossiping, ignoring, ridicule, ridicu ridiculing, holding grudges, or wanting to cause harm. Please apply the following. Stop it. Two words. Whether you're looking in the mirror, ridiculing, judging, condemning because of past wrongs, or whether you're looking at somebody else condemning, judging, or pointing fingers of scorn because of poor decisions that maybe have been uh, made as they've cast out weed seeds into their garden plot. Elder Uchtdorf, or President Uchtdorf at the time, gave us the pretty powerful counsel to stop it because what we're doing is we're limiting or trying to cut people off from the power of the plan of salvation which is rooted in Jesus Christ as their mediator, their intercessor. May the Lord bless all of us as we move forward, continuing to teach the ideal, continuing to study the ideal, but then sitting down like a second grader to work on our math problems and realizing, oh, I messed up again and again and again. It's a good thing that math isn't broken. It's a good thing that the gospel isn't broken. It's a good thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is in a rowboat coming out to help those of us who often get in a little too far over our heads. I know he lives. I know he loves. I know he redeems and I know he saves. This is the plan. The plan wasn't for you to be perfect. The plan was for you to do the best you can to move forward and learn from your own experience and to rely on the merits, mercy, and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.